The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 293. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page, at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page, where you can watch this podcast, at Brian McClanahan. You'll find all those social media accounts at my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com where it's always free to enroll and you get a free course. So check your email once you enroll or click on that 10 Myths of American History class free of charge. My gift to you for enrolling, again, free of charge. But I do have courses available for purchase there. So if you want to support the show, you can purchase a course. You get great material and you help the show at the same time. Also, those that do enroll get the best deals on forthcoming courses. I have one coming up. You're going to want it. It's going to be an awesome class. And those who are in McClanahan Academy subscribers are going to know about it first and get a great deal, the best deal I'm going to offer on it first. So you want to be a McClanahan Academy subscriber, no skin off your back. I mean, it's easy. Free of charge, just click and roll, you're on it. Also, you can support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can go to anchor.fm. You can go there. You can support the show there monetarily if you want to. You can also leave a message to try to get on the show, right? So I'm going to talk about that in a minute, just one second. But it's a great way to support the show by going to anchor.fm. You can go to learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. All kinds of ways to support the show. Go to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the shop tab. Get your Brian McClanahan Show logo and all kinds of cool stuff. You can advertise. You can get people thinking locally and acting locally. This is what we want. The movement has to be organic. Share this podcast on social media. Rate it on your favorite podcast site. Get people engaged. Because the more you can do that, the more the message spreads. And when you leave that message at anchor.fm or you send me an email through Brian McClanahan, click on that contact button. Make the show better. Give me some suggestions. I read them. I appreciate everything you do. I appreciate everyone that listens to the show and everyone that promotes the show. But I want you to make the show better. So... Think about a topic you think I could talk about for 30 minutes or so and send it to me. And that's a nice segue into today's topic because I am going to talk about a listener-generated question in this show. So a listener, actually several listeners, made this show better today. And you can do that too. So let's talk about the topic of the day. This is a Think Locally, Act Locally episode. And it has to do with a burning question about secession. Now, Uh, I mentioned this in my email that I sent out yesterday, in fact, uh, about the 1860-2020 comparison. And I said, look, there are several states now that are engaged in open dialogue about secession. So you've got Texas, you've got California, you've got Vermont, you've got Hawaii, you've got Alaska. And of course, there's secession movements in other states as well secession groups in other states as well. But these are the big ones. And then you've got this new interest in splitting states off. So you've got that movement in Virginia, wanting to join West Virginia. You've got a movement uh, in California, wanting to break California to several states. Uh, There's some discussion in Oregon now, trying to join 
Idaho. Um, you've got discussion. One of my favorites is Illinois wanting to boot Chicago out. I mean, I think that's beautiful. Just get rid of Chicago. right? Chicago's a horrible stain on Illinois, so let's just get rid of Chicago. Make it its own city, your own city state, whatever you want to do, but get rid of it. Uh, you've had movements like this in the panhandle of Florida before. Um, so you've got movement like this in New York. I mean, you've got these things popping up all over the place. Why? Because decentralization is the political topic of the 21st century. All this discussion about the national government, quote-unquote national government, when reality, and people know this, the rubber meets the road at the state and local level. More importantly, at the local level, and people are tired of every central authority telling them what to do. And they're tired of their culture being abused by a central authority that does not represent them. Whether it's in Washington, D.C., or whether it's in your state capital, people are talking about decentralization. And I think in the next 80 years, this is going to be a major, major issue. I won't be around to see how it plays out 80 years from now, when we get to 20, the 22nd century. But I think in the 21st century, more and more people are going to talk about this thing, this idea of decentralization, and we might actually see some of it happen, maybe. So the question is, how does this actually pull off? How would somebody, how would some group of people actually get a secession movement to work in 21st century America? There are a lot of obstacles to this, without question. A lot of obstacles. Particularly when you have those on the right, the quote-unquote right, conservatives, vehemently against it. You see, you would think that conservatives would be ones who would favor it because, of course, Ultimately, it's not just conservatives that support decentralization. Leftists do too. California, the California secession movement is all about California can't be leftist enough. The Vermont secession movement, all about Vermont can't be leftist enough. It's blocked by the general government. But you would think that conservatives understanding, as they do supposedly, the founding principles would realize that self-determination is one of the greatest of all of the founding principles. Self-determination being able to choose your own path. It's very libertarian, of course, and a lot of conservatives are hostile to libertarians for whatever reason. I think it's because they think libertarians are hedonists. They're libertines, not just libertarians. And so conservatives think that's going to run over their, their culture. But in reality, most of the libertarians I know are not that way. Now, I know there's left libertarians. and Most libertarians just believe that and live and let live. You live your way, I'll live my way, and we'll get along. And in fact, I think a lot of Americans think that, left and right. They just want to, they're the cultural imperialists without question, and they're, they're the political Puritans who want to enforce their will on everyone else, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the socialists like Bernie Sanders. And so you have these people out there that want to make you live like them, and that's why they get involved in politics. But most Americans are just, you know, just want to have a job, make a little money, go on a vacation, make sure their kids are well-educated, put some money back for a rainy day, uh, have a little fun with their money, whatever it is, they simply just want to have a good life. And they want to be left alone. They want to live their life the way they see fit. And they don't want anyone telling them what to do. I think most Americans are libertarian in that particular way. I've already talked about the meaning of liberty on this particular podcast before. I did a whole episode about it. But um, when we look at this, there's that very self 
that uh, that uh, self-determination streak runs a lot, uh, very much through American culture. Now, when I say conservatives are generally opposed to this, I saw a tweet, Richard Brookheiser, if you don't know who he is, he's written a number of books on the founding period. He's been in History Channel documentaries. He is a nationalist nationalist. If you, if you challenge him on secession, he just regurgitates John Marshall and Alexander Hamilton and... Uh, <laughs> And Abraham Lincoln, I mean, he just he just regurgitates what they're saying, just regurgitates. Uh, he actually admitted the other day he's only read one book, and I don't know if he's serious or not, but only read one book on John C. Calhoun. It was, I believe he was talking about Margaret Coit's book, and he said, oh, it's too, too, uh, too laudatory. I just can't get through it. So here's a man that really doesn't, I think, understand the fact that the nationalists were the minority when the Constitution was ratified. He's written a book on Gouverneur Morris, written a book on John Marshall. I, I'm, I'm not clear how he can't get that, but he doesn't. And of course, when you again, when you challenge him on secessionists, and he retweeted something from somebody else, I don't know who this person was, saying the secessionist apologists have never explained to me quite, I mean, they can't get over this, how these general government operates on individuals and not states. And so therefore it proves that the general government was founded by the people, not the states. Except Article 7 of the Constitution completely refutes that. I mean, this is, this is a compact between state the states so ratifying the same. Between the states, not individuals, it says very clearly, between the states so ratifying the same. Yes, the states delegated authority to the central government that could operate on individuals. That was well known. But that didn't mean that it wasn't still a compact between states. The ratifying conventions prove it. The language that was used proves it. The fact that, that it was sold to the states on that particular basis proves it during the ratifying conventions. I mean, all the evidence is against the nationalist interpretation of the Constitution, which is why they worked so hard. People like Joseph Story and James Wilson and Governor Morris, even they worked so hard at John Marshall to try to ensure that that particular interpretation was knocked back because they knew they were on the losing side. But yet, now that they have the reins of power, they can do whatever they want. They can say whatever they want. Daniel Webster. Uh, it doesn't mean they're right. It doesn't mean they're anywhere near right. But of course, when you have people regurgitating this nonsense on a regular basis, it makes it very difficult to actually make inroads into showing that secession is possible at all kinds of in all kinds of ways, right? And in all levels, whether it's state secession or I talked about in the last uh, last couple of episodes, Virginia secession talked about how that would work, but I am going to get into detail here on how some uh, how this would work overall. So if we're going to be talking about secession and people are interested in this, and I think more and more people will be interested in this, how could a state actually pull it off? How could a local community actually pull it off? That would be a little more challenging. Though at the end of the day, we know that one thing that people can do when it comes to nullification, it's not enforce illegal laws. I mean, you, you have your sheriff. This, this actually gets down at the local level into the people that you elect to represent you. A law that's not enforced is no law. We see this all the time. We see stupid laws that aren't enforced on a regular basis. I mean, for example, many cities have laws against spitting on the sidewalk. We know that law is never enforced. So it's a law that is nullified effectively by non-enforcement. It's prosecutorial discretion. I mean, this is what the Obama administration actually used 
in certain cases where they thought the law was unconstitutional or unjust. They just didn't prosecute people for it. Essentially, that's what's happening with uh, medical marijuana in the states. They're just saying we're not going to we're not going to prosecute people for this. We're going to decriminalize. It's prosecutorial discretion. Now, the Trump administration has come out and said we're we're not going to we're actually going to work against that now. The Justice Department is going to go after people, but they don't have the resources to go out and do this. I think Mike Mahari did a great uh, little brief Mahari's Minute. I don't know what he's calling these things now that he does, but I saw it on social media where he talked about this. So non-enforcement actually is, is a way to nullify something, and therefore your community reflects the culture of the people there. Um, and that's a great way to do these things, just non-compliance, non-enforcement. So your, com- your community then is free from excessive regulation or burdens. Now, if someone comes in and, of course, wants to uh, uh, ruffle some feathers and create some problems, they could go after people. I mean, a new law enforcement official could come in. They could start enforcing the law. Somebody could be sued for not doing something with the law that's on the books. I mean, these things can happen. So you don't want the laws on the books, but you can, of course, nullify them. Or there's jury nullification, which an unconstitutional law, if you're charged with an unconstitutional law, the jury can then nullify the law by saying we just he's not going to be prosecuted for this and essentially trying to put it on the books that this law was unconstitutional, make a statement. So all those things would work to try to uh, keep your community in a way that would be reflective of the culture and the people in that community. But what about on a larger scale? What happens if you just are in Virginia right now? You're seeing what's happening there. You're seeing the tyranny of Virginia, and you want out. Or what happens if you're in California, and you think California is being abused by a right-wing general government, and we got to get out of the union? Now, I mean, I am all for it. California should leave the union. Now, there are two ways to do this. Two ways for these states, if you want to talk about a state in particular, to get out of the union if you're California. As far as counties, I mentioned in the last podcast or a couple of podcasts ago about Virginia secession. If you're talking about counties, how that could work. But all of it has to come down to a grassroots movement. It all comes down to the people of the states deciding in one way or another that they want out of whatever political central authority they're talking about. This is perfectly legal and perfectly in line, even secession, as I'm going to talk about, perfectly in line with what the founding generation thought was self-determination. Now, they feared secession. I will not say they didn't. In fact, the reason the Constitution was drafted and then ratified was because there was a fear the Union was going to break apart at that point. So we get the Constitution to try to have a more perfect union, a union of what? I mean, this is the question, a union of what? Why a union of states? A union of states, a more perfect union, not a permanent union, not an indivisible union, not an indissoluble union, but a more perfect union, a union of states. I mean, the, 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 the answer to these questions about secession is so apparent, but people just don't want me... So with these people that say it's not a union, they would they would actually say that the union is a union of people. Union of people. 
Where, I mean, I, well, the preamble says it's we the people of the United States. And John Marshall said that well, where else could you have these conventions? You couldn't have an aggregate convention of people. You had to have it in the states. This is the response that we're going to get. But, of course, Article 7 blows all that apart. It had to be, not, had to be ratified by conventions of nine, of nine states. and uh, Nine states had to do it. Nine state conventions. It's a, it's a constitution between the states, so ratifying the same. So, I mean, the language of the document is clear. But before I get into that and how this would work, I want to take a brief break. I'll be right back. We'll talk about how this would work, how secession would work, and how this is going, how some state could pull this off in just a minute. I'll see you then. Let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan Academy. I know at the beginning of this particular podcast or this video, I talked about McClanahan Academy. But let me go into a little more detail about why I think you should sign up for it and why, and why I created it. First, a little bit about me. I have a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina, and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years. And I've seen college students get worse over time, the curriculum get worse, and students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that. And this is why I created the McClanahan Academy. Now, first and it's always free to enroll at McClanahan Academy. You sign up. It's free. And I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do. But I've got eight courses for sale there and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum, and uh, my family has homeschooled all of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum, that's why I designed the United States History 18, to 1865 and 1865 to the present. You've got enough material, you've got lesson plans, you've got uh, tests, you've got reading material, you've got reading seminars, You've got 36 weeks, if you take them, buy them both, you've got 36 weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school history curriculum. Or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise. But it's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism and political correctness. So sign up at mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Again, always free to enroll, and I'll see you there. All right, we're back talking about how we could pull off secession. How could this work? Now, uh, there are several ways this could actually work. So we're going to start with the California model first and what CalExit is actually saying that could happen. And this goes back to the 1869 decision of Texas v. White, a decision that's often cited by people that never read it, that it said that secession is unconstitutional. That's not what it said. Texas v. White does not declare secession to be illegal. Texas v. White says that unilateral secession is illegal. But what else would they say in that particular way? You're talking about a Supreme Court decision just uh, less than five years after the war is over. They would not validate secession because then what the heck was, was the Union doing? If, it was a, if secession was legal and you were dealing with an independent confederacy of states or independent states to begin with, and what the United States just did was illegal because they did not have a declaration of war. Essentially, what you would have done there is declare that for four years, you were fighting an illegal war. So the Supreme Court would never have 
come down and said what the southern states did was perfectly legal. But what Chase did do, Chief Justice Chase, what he did do was say that secession could take place if the other states said it could happen. Now, why would he say this in 1869? So in other words, if California wants to leave the Union, if the other states said, California, you can leave the Union, California could leave the Union, meaning that Congress can boot states out of the Union. And it wouldn't have to be unanimous. The other states wouldn't have to do this unanimously. It could just be done. Now, this is a very interesting argument because it goes back to a couple of things that are happening in 18... First of all, in 1868, we get military reconstruction. 1867, in fact, you get military reconstruction. The Congress created military districts and booted the states that Andrew Johnson said were in the Union out of the Union. Essentially, this is what they did. They said, you're no longer in the Union. You're now territories. You're conquered provinces. You, you committed state suicide when you decided to rebel against the United States. Okay, so the Congress then said you're out of the Union. Well, this is an interesting legal question. Can the Congress tell a state they're no longer in the Union? Now, I would say no, because the state is sovereign. But according to Chase and Texas v. White, they can do it. And they can do it because Congress may admit new states into the Union. So if they can admit new states, they can boot states out. This is supposedly part, I mean, if you, if you think of the Constitution in this way, that the Constitution, just because if, if you, the Constitution doesn't say you can do it, you can still do it because it's an implied power. If you believe in implied powers, then certainly this makes 100% sense. If the other states, and it only has to be, look, if you look at how states are admitted, a joint resolution of Congress, a bare majority can admit a state to the Union, then a bare majority could boot a state out of the Union according to the logic of Texas v. White and, of course, the Reconstruction Congress. So if a majority in Congress with the president decided they wanted to get rid of California, they could. They could just say, California, you're no longer in the union. We're not going to seat your representatives. You're no longer welcome here. And there's nothing California could do about it. Congress has complete authority to say who can sit in that chamber and who can't. So if the Majority of Congress said California is no longer welcome in the Union. You're not going to be in the Union. Your congressional delegation will not be here any longer. Now, would they do this? Probably not. And I say that they wouldn't because you still have representatives from California. California, to Republicans, is not a lost cause. Because you've got a couple of pretty prominent Republicans from California in the Congress. I would just say it's a lost cause and it should go. I mean, cut off the appendage that's causing the problems. Cut out the cancer, which in many ways is California. So get rid of it. If an appendage is, has gangrene, which California does, cut it off. Better to save the whole by cutting off a part. This is, this is Edmund Burke. So we have a way to have secession that involves the Congress, according to the Supreme Court. So any state could do this. I mean, it could be California. It could be Texas. It could be Alaska. It could be Vermont. It could be Hawaii. I mean, you understand why a state like Hawaii would want independence. 
Their culture is completely different than that of the United States as a whole. They were an independent kingdom for a long time. So it's completely understandable why Hawaii should not want to be part of the United States. Same thing with Alaska. It's a huge place, very much independent from the U.S. Uh, in a way, in terms of distance. California, with a culture that is much more left-leaning than the rest of the United States, at least the general culture, you do have parts of California that aren't. And this is why Victor Davis Hanson, among others, is so upset every time Somebody talks about California. That's his native state. How dare you talk about California and get rid of California? There's good things in California. We've had Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon. Yeah, a long time ago. I mean, my grandparents lived in California, too. They loved it until about 1968. Then it went all downhill. So um, it's, uh, it's amazing to me how everyone cites Texas v. White as the definitive case that says secession can't happen. Now, are there other ways to have secession? Well, of course. Of course there are. And I think the South did it. I mean, look, I believe in 1861, the South de facto and de jure seceded from the United States. I don't think there's any question this happened because of legitimacy. Now, I gave a talk about four years ago at a conference, an Abbeville Institute conference, where I talked about conventions as the voice of the people. And I'll, when I send out an email about this, I'll put a link in there. So if you're not on my email list, you need to get on that. I'll put a link in there to it. But I want to refer back to that particular talk because I addressed a lot of this stuff in that talk. So The question was from the listeners, how could secession, is there some type of guidebook? Well, one is to try to get your state, if you're not in California, or let's say you're in California, you want to secede. You've got to get the other states to believe you should go and then to vote in Congress to get you out. That's one way. The other way would be to work within your state to affect this type of change. Now, that's going to be, either way is going to be complicated. What you would need to do here is think about legitimacy. Go back to the founding period. When the United States Continental Congress decided, or the states themselves, as they started calling themselves, decided that they were no longer going to be part of the British Empire, what did they do? Did they ask permission? They just did it. And they just did it by first having uh, legislative, uh, legislative authority, legitimacy within their own borders. So they already had their state governments. Every state already had a government. And then they had the Continental Congress. They just stopped paying attention to Parliament. Look, they said, Parliament's no longer legitimate. We're not following your laws. And they had a Continental Congress, which John Adams said simply, this was a collection of ambassadors from the states. And they had their state legislatures. They, only followed, they didn't follow the British law anymore. They just said, we're not doing it. That law is no longer enforceable within our borders. And this didn't mean this was unanimous by far. It wasn't. You had pockets where the... Loyalists, the Tories, still enforce British law all over the place. But in certain areas, they didn't do it anymore. They just didn't enforce the law. That's the way it worked. It's legitimacy. If people said the United States government is no longer legitimate in this area, in this state, it's no longer legitimate. I mean, if they just stop following the laws. Now, the United States government can say, well, it is. We're going to send the army. We're going to send the police force. Whatever we're going to do to try to enforce it. I don't know how that would look. The optics of that would be a little off, I think, in 2020. 
Maybe it wouldn't. I mean, I think there's enough conservatives. Well, I mean, uh, Bill Bennett, for example, said one time, if there's one person in a state that wanted to be part of the United States, we're going to send in the army to make sure that person's supported. This is ridiculous. This is what these people think. They're just going to go bomb away. But if enough people overall in the United States believed in self-determination, well, I mean, this can be a very peaceful thing. And it's, a, it's reflective of a desire to live and let live. Self-determination. So legitimacy is key here. You just decide you're no longer going to enforce the laws of whatever authority you're talking about. But then it comes down to conventions. The convention is a uniquely American thing. Americans, the founding generation, invented it. So when you go back and you look at what happened with, uh, say, the Continental Congress, essentially that was a convention. And they talked about these. They talked about it in those terms. As I mentioned in this particular talk, I'm going to just read a couple of things here. I say, but what about conventions? The colonies sent delegates to several congresses during the prelude to the American War for Independence. The Albany Congress of 1754, the Stamp Act Congress of 1765, and the Continental Congress of 1775 are all examples of such gatherings. They were not called conventions, but they had the same legal status. These congresses were not legally authorized by the British Crown and, and had no de jure legislative authority but they had the legitimacy of the people of the colonies. The delegates to each Congress were ambassadors of their colonies and were given instructions on how to proceed from the respective legislatures. The delegates to the Stamp Act Congress were chosen by the colonial legislatures themselves and were not directly elected by the people of each colony. That makes them different from a convention, but their extra legal status and charge to deal with one issue directly gave the, meaning, gave the meeting I'm sorry, an added air of authority and legitimacy. This was an issue too large to deal with in the regular political channels and thus required a special meeting to assess a response to the crisis. In other words, it was officially extra-legal, but carried the weight of a legal body due to the status it's conferred by the legal assembly. So this was a convention. And when we get to 17, these were conventions, or at least getting to that point. When we get to the 1780s. We have the Annapolis Convention, for example, that was called to deal with problems under the Articles of Confederation. And they were going to decide what they needed to do with the Articles. Should they amend the Articles? Should they alter the Articles? What are they going to do with this Articles of Confederation? So, um, they did. They, they met. They didn't have a quorum. So they decided to call a convention of all the states in Philadelphia in May of 1787. That became the Philadelphia Convention or the Constitutional Convention. Of course, not all the states showed up. Rhode Island did not send a delegation. But again, this is the conventions. The state legislature sent delegates to this convention so they can deal with these issues. They had the charge of the states. They were extra legal because they had no what they did did not have any legal meaning. It still had to be ratified by the conventions of the states. Conventions the voice of the people of the states. Not in the aggregate, but the people of the states. The, this, these delegates weren't chosen by an aggregate of people. They were chosen by the states. And then the Constitution was ratified by the people of the states through convention. So conventions became the mode to alter the government. In fact, you could say that the Constitution itself is a secession because the Articles of Confederation explicitly said in order for that document to be done away with or changed, it had to be unanimous. 
and they did not have unanimous consent. They only had to have nine states say we're joining this new, this new government. In fact, North Carolina and Rhode Island didn't join it for several years. So how is this happening? How do we have a situation where we have unanimous consent? The article, the articles then, I mean, the Constitution should be illegal. But of course, the conventions did it, so that's the key. Conventions. Um, but this is how a secession could work. This is how a secession might work today. You have to have conventions. So let me go down to the end of this particular talk. We know the, uh, that the Constitution can be amended through conventions. It can change the, through conventions in the states, the entire Constitution can be abolished. So conventions are the mode to change the Constitution or to completely get rid of it or to leave it. So I want to get to the last part of this. I say this brings us to the current push for nullification efforts across the United States. How could the convention be used to further the call for greater restrictions on federal overreach? There are only six states that do not have language in their respective constitutions authorizing conventions. Arizona... Arkansas, Indiana, Mississippi, New Jersey, Texas, and Vermont. Some states have specific language in place that details about elections and parameters of the conventions, while others have brief, vague language. But this does not matter. As history has shown, any le state legislature can call a convention for any reason and charge it with a singular or multiple objective. Whether these delegates are chosen by the people at large or by the state legislatures is up to the state. But typically, those that have been led by the people at large are better representative of the voice of the people than those chosen by the state legislature. So this is how it would work. You have to get your state to call a convention. Get your state to call a convention. Work within your state legislature. Say, we need a convention to address this issue. This is how secession took place in South Carolina. It's how secession took place in all of the states that left the Union in 1860 and 61 by conventions. In fact, unanimous conventions in some of these states. South Carolina was unanimous. Unanimous. There wasn't unanimous support for the American War for Independence, but there was certainly unanimous support in South Carolina in 1860 to leave the Union. The voice of the people of the state. Conventions. I don't think there's any nationalist even that can say this was not the case. Now, John Marshall tried to get around this. Well, I mean, Ed, this is, you had to do this somehow. You couldn't have just a national convention. You had to have the states involved somehow. This is what the conservatives will regurgitate, but it's ridiculous. If the state of California called a convention, and that convention voted to leave the union, it could do so. Now, we know the mechanisms in place for counties to leave a state and join another state as long as the state legislatures agree. We know that's probably not going to happen in every in, in any case. Uh, we know that West Virginia would welcome these counties in, but we know that probably the governor of Virginia would not have them, not allow them to leave. I mean, so that would get into a very difficult situation. But we know that conventions, conventions can be used, particularly within states, to leave a union. I think state secession would actually be easier than county secession. You're still dealing with, this, with the same problems. But overall, uh, conventions are the way forward. And if, I mean, that's, that's the plan. You want to know how to do it? You got to get people at the grassroots level from the bottom up to push for a convention, to call a convention, 
to address the situation. If we look at this for amending the Constitution, you could have a situation where you say, look, we're going to have a convention that's going to say we're going to abolish the presidency. We're going to abolish the Supreme Court. You could do any of that through a convention. Three quarters of the states, any of it. Now, that's a very large threshold, and I think um, too large. In fact, I've recommended to drop that to three-fifths, to have three-fifths, just 60%. But regardless, conventions can do any of these things. The founding generation understood conventions were the way forward. Conventions were the way that you alter and change things. You can alter or abolish your system of government through conventions. There's the answer to your question. All right. So, think locally, act locally, think about conventions, think about nullification in your own community, how you can do that, how you can pull that off. Get involved. Get your local law enforcement to say, we're just not going to enforce that stupid law. I have an oath to defend the Constitution of my state, and of course the U.S. Constitution, if there's unconstitutional laws, then I'm violating my oath if I enforce those laws. So, I mean, get, you have to get people to believe this. And they have to be thoughtful people, and they have to be thinking people, not just reactionary people. All right. Think locally, act locally. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClendon. <laughs>